welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in once again. A very interesting show this week. All of the talk seems to be about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and all of this stuff and what's going on with the refugees and what's going on, you know, in this corner of the world and that corner of the world. And I want to take a little bit broader view of uh, the issues that are facing us this week. But before we can have that view, before we can turn to my first guest this week, I want to make my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Uh, you know, it's so important these days, quite frankly. And I mean, I say this every week, but the reality is increasingly I find myself alienated and isolated from media resources. I mean, even ones that are sometimes good turn out to, you know, turn churn out uh, negative stories, stories that are not um, what I would consider to be of the uh, highest quality. Uh, the writing may not be great. The, the perspectives may not be fully rounded. They might not provide a balanced uh, view. All of that is unfortunately comes with the terror territory with the media and with the alternative media. And then there is Counterpunch, which I believe to be a truly unique space online, a truly unique space in the media landscape. And it's something that I believe in, that I'm committed to, and that I hope you are as well if you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. And if you do agree with me, one way to support Counterpunch is by getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great magazine to get in your mailbox. Wonderful articles, great columns, excellent artwork and I love having them around I have a stack sitting on my desk all of the all of the past issues so counterpunch subscription is a great thing to do also of course you can donate to counterpunch through the website you can use PayPal credit card all of the usual stuff and then of course you can support counterpunch radio by giving us a positive review on iTunes sharing the links to these shows sharing them on your social media network sending them in your mass emails to friends all of that is tremendously helpful um, I try to do this as as a you know let's let's call it a public service a public uh, resource as much as I can so any help is greatly appreciated. Anyway, all of that out of the way, I do want to turn to my first guest. This is, I believe, the second return guest that I've had so far. But I this is somebody who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Somebody who I think is really on the is is the leading edge on the issues of environment on environmental issues and on climate change and all of those, you know, the arrayed negative uh, phenomenon that we're looking at facing our world. It's Robert Hunziker. He is a freelance writer and environmental journalist. He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. This is his second time on the show. Let's welcome him back. Robert, thanks for coming back. Yeah, hi, Eric. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure, believe me. And uh, I, I second your uh, uh, endorsement of uh, Counterpunch is one of the you know, one of those islands that we've got of, uh, of resourcefulness and truth about what's really happening. It's a great place. Thank you, Robert, for coming back on the show. Listen, I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at the news. I'm, we're we're speaking here right at the beginning of March. Uh, I. We're talking in the five-year anniversary of the Fukushima disaster. We're looking at the headlines talking about global temperatures, where they are, where this is going. This is some frightening stuff. And so I really wanted to have you back to break this down for us and to really touch on some of these issues. So let's begin there if we could. I saw a story in the Washington Post. I saw stories really all over social media and uh, talking about 
two degrees Celsius and finally having broken that plateau. Tell us about that, what that means now that we have January and February temperature readings, and what does this mean for regular people? Well, um, listen, Eric, if you go throughout the paleoclimatic history, uh, and they do this by studying uh, ice core and uh, sediment and tree rings and those kind of things, they can see what's happened throughout the entire history of the climate. And they've gotten very precise about that. But at any rate, if you look at these record hot years, record temperature years, uh, in the past they came once every 50, 25, 150, 100 years. That's the norm historically. But things have changed. Until recently, and now, now what we've got is the following. Record-breaking hot years for the planet. 1998 broke all records. Then 2005 broke all records. Then 2010, 2015, 2014, 2015. Now we're on our way to 2016. See what's happening? It's compressing. It's getting closer and closer in time. It's not once every 25 or 50 years that we get like the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, right? Uh, it's happening every year. That's important. Think about that. Now, according to NASA, January of this year was the most abnormally hot month in history. February, the hottest average month in recorded history. So now we're doing it by the month, not the year. 2C was hit, and this is that benchmark that they talk about, all the scientists talk about, uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Control, uh, and the uh, COP21 in Paris. We don't want to go over 2C or a lot of bells and whistles and sirens start to go off about major problems. Well, we actually uh, slipped above 2C for the first time ever last week in the Northern Hemisphere. So that's the reading for the Northern Hemisphere, not the entire planet, by the way. So, yes, uh, the, the, the temperature thing is uh, way, way, way abnormal. Well, so, Robert, look, I I know somebody who's sitting somewhere listening to us right now is going to say, wait a second, guys, you're jumping to conclusions. This is an El Nino phenomenon. We've seen the El Nino phenomenons historically. We know how uh, out of kilter global climates, uh, global climate can be in El Nino years. You know, Mike Davis, late Victorian Holocaust documents just how uh, global the reach of El Ninos can be. So how do we know that this January, February, March phenomenon isn't just an El Nino phenomenon. Well, um, uh, (laughs) that that may be contributing to it, by the way, but that's not the issue. The issue is that we've we've had, and I just read off the years, one year after another, breaking the record in the without the El Nino, right? Yeah. Okay, before the El Nino. So, but not only that, you've also been in in the solar cycle twenty four over this period of time when we've had these record temperatures which means we're getting the least irradiation from the sun. It's the lowest it's been in 100 years. What if it were normal? What would we have then? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's another factor. But let's talk about something that's um, even more frightening. And it's difficult, I think, for people to uh, conceptualize that it's frightening that temperatures are going up. But let's talk about how it could be frightening if temperatures when temperatures go up. Because if you look at the Arctic, uh, which is really the thermostat for the northern hemisphere, think of it the thermostat in your home. That's what the Arctic is. Mm-hmm. 
temperatures are increasing up there 1C per decade. Now keep, you know, just for, for perspective purposes, uh, we've increased uh, uh, like 1C since the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. This isn't happening every 200 years. This is happening every 10 years in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So the Arctic is heating up much, much faster than the rest of the planet. Uh, currently, as you and I speak, they're experiencing June weather. Temperatures are 16 C above average. The February sea ice extent is the lowest ever. Now, if you look at sea ice volume, let's just look at a couple of numbers so we understand what we're talking about with the Arctic and we can understand how the planet's going through a major meltdown. Um, in 1980, the sea ice volume was 17,000 cubic kilometers. Okay? Today, it's less than 7,000. Now, this is the September reading, which is the low point every year. Okay? Because that's the low point of the ice every year in the Arctic. It's dropped over 50%. If you look at the thickness of the central Arctic, and they, they measure this, the Polar Science Center out of the University of Washington actually does 3,000 measurements to come up with these figures. In 1975, it ran 12 to 15 feet thick. Today, it's 2 to 4 feet thick. Now, here's the scary part. The U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, Department of Oceanography, which is one of the premier uh, climate study schools in, in America, maybe in the world, uh, they expect you'll have an ice-free Arctic where it's all blue, no white, by the year 2016, give or take three years. So off the outside, that'd be 2019. The problem with that is several fold. Because remember, I talked about the Arctic is like the um, um, thermostat in your home. Yep. Uh, it's also controls, and that thermostat also serves like when you were a kid, you had a top that you would you would uh, pump, and then it would spin real fast. Remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, until it did what? It would slow down, and it would do then. It go into big loops, wouldn't it? it remember would, that? Yep, wobbling. That top? Yep. Wobbling. Well, the climate, the Arctic also influences, the thermostat also influences the jet streams. And the jet streams do what? They dictate weather patterns throughout the entire northern hemisphere. Okay? So what happens is as the Arctic heats up, it throws off those jet streams and they have the big wobbles. It slows them down. And that's why you get these extended embedded droughts like we've got in California right now. Mm -hmm. like they've got along the whole eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. Syria has been hit for the last seven years with the biggest drought in 900 years, and it's part of the Fertile Crescent. There are some people who've coming out and been doing studies recently, and they're saying they think that contributed a lot to the civil war that started in Syria, by the way. Uh, but let's go back to the Arctic. Uh, so Colorado a couple years ago had essentially a tropical storm. How did it get a tropical storm? Remember, remember the flooding you had two years ago in Colorado? Sure, yeah. Okay, that was a tropical storm, a deluge, that lasted straight through for 48 hours. I know my brother lives there in Boulder. Um, and, and, but the reason for it is you have the changes in weather patterns because we've got changes in the climate. It's moving a tropical storm from the tropics to Boulder, Colorado, of all things. 
Mm-hmm. So we've got that problem. And, the, with- and I just want to jump in here. You know, what's interesting and part of what part of what um, I wanted to really hammer home for people, Robert, is to make this issue, climate change and all of the attendant issues, to make it personal to allow people to really identify with these things so when we have a tropical storm in 2014 in Colorado we also have the quote-unquote polar vortex on the east coast so we have all of these irregularities in our weather patterns happening simultaneously but because everyone seemingly so atomized and so focused on just their own little corner of the world they're not seeing the correlations between all of these things drought in California tropical storm in Colorado, polar vortex in 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 uh, the East Coast, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right, and you've just personalized it by doing that, by saying that, because that really takes it home to everybody. But um, uh, that that's one thing that, that's one of the problems with the Arctic. But the bigger problem, and the one that scares scares the daylights out of me, is the methane issue, because methane yeah. can be an intense climate changer. And what, what, here's what happens in the Arctic. Uh, as we lose the ice and the snow cover, or the ice specifically, um, then what happens is when you have the ice, well, 90% of the radiation that comes in from the sun, pretty much 90% is reflected back to outer space when you have ice. So that's something they call the albedo effect. Uh, But what happens when you remove the ice? You then have not a bright, shiny background that reflects the sun back out. You have a dark background that absorbs the sunlight. Mm -hmm. And that's what the wide open blue sea is all about. It absorbs sunlight. It heats up the water much faster. Uh, The problem is that you've got uh, immeasurable amounts of methane that's stored in the ice, under the ice, throughout the Arctic. Huge amounts. Right, right now, in the atmosphere, there's five gigatons of methane, or CH4, in the atmosphere. That's one of the trace gases that influences global warming, right? Um, you could have an outburst from the East Siberian Shelf, where they have very shallow waters, of up to 50 gigatons. That's what some scientists, like uh, uh, Sakova out of Russia, believe could happen. Uh, Peter Wadhams out of Cambridge believe can happen. Uh, Paul Beckworth of the University of Ottawa believes could happen. If you get that, you've got a major emergency on your hands. You've got that's when you have the red lights flashing and the sirens going off. But guess what? It's too late now because that's what leads to global runaway global warming. And we're, that's and, the and risk we're, we've got. And we're also seeing evidence of that. I mean, the, the most recent studies that I have seen point to these massive um, sinkholes that have emerged in various parts of Siberia as being directly connected to the uh, melting of permafrost, which is perhaps releasing methane, causing these huge um, blowouts in the landmass. You're absolutely right, and that's that's what several scientists have identified. There's one Russian scientist, I can't think of his name now, who's been studying that stuff for like 20 or 30 years, and he's terrified, absolutely terrified over what's happening because of, of the big meltdown in Siberia. But, you know, we've actually got evidence that this stuff's already creeping up on us, uh, uh, Eric. It's already starting to happen. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the North Carolina, the Outer Banks, are you? Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, it's a 200-mile island, uh, and, and, you know, 50,000 people live there, um, and it's a 
great resort area. I think they've got golf courses and all kinds of things going on there. But, uh, people go for um, real nice hotels and things. Well, it's a 200-mile island that's collapsing, and the major Highway 12 is this famous, famous scenic route that runs all the way through the Outer Banks. It washes out all the time now. It keeps washing out. Parts of that island, of the Outer Banks, now are down to 25% of their original width. Mm. Okay. So there's a real live example right in our own backyard of what's happening. Then if you look at Alaska, we were just talking a moment ago at the top of this show about how hot everything's gotten, correct? Well, yeah. guess what? Guess what? In, 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 in Anchorage, Alaska, February 29th is going down as an historic day. And the reason February 29th is an historic day in Anchorage, Alaska, this February, it's the first day in recorded history. They have no snow in Anchorage on February, in the month of February in one day. Incredible. Since December 1st, Anchorage, Alaska, has had 7.9 inches of snow. This is cumulative, total, right? Normal, normal, Eric, 60 inches. Yep. Okay. Now, the Alaskan glaciers are dropping six feet per year. Per year, not per decade. Per year, Eric, six feet per year. Think of that. This is, this. you know, we've got runaway climate change. We don't just have climate change. We have turbocharged climate change taking place. And what's insane about that, what's insane about some of those examples is that you have people who are literally making the argument that because the ice is disappearing as rapidly as it is, it's opening more opportunities for oil drilling, more opportunity for fossil fuel exploitation. Yeah, and Carnival Cruise Lines will probably have cruises up over the, I would imagine, uh, over the Arctic at some point in time so you can go to the top of the world. Can't you imagine that? Sure. But go to the bottom of the world for a minute, Eric, uh, because one of the things that's so curious and interesting about this whole climate science that we've got, you know, it's such a new field. 1988, James Hansen stood before the Senate and said, I've detected greenhouse gases, blah, blah, blah. It's been a, and it was on the New York Times front page. This is a new field of study in terms of emphasis. It's so young. I mean, you look at any other field, even sociology, psychology, economics, mathematics, they go back, what, hundreds of years of schooling, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so they're making new discoveries all the time. Now, there's some, been some major new studies that have come out of Antarctica. Now, in Antarctica, uh, that's 85 to 90 percent of the, all the ice in the world is right there in Antarctica. And if you melted the whole thing, sea levels would rise 200 feet and we'd all be toast. Uh, the fastest ice retreat on Earth, the fastest ice retreat on Earth, where it's melting the fastest on the whole planet, is the Pine Island Glacier, which is a 37-mile ice tongue in Antarctica, West Antarctica. That's the fastest. Uh, it's irreversibly melting, by the way. Now, if that entire 37-mile glacier goes down, it'll that alone will raise sea levels less than a foot, maybe between half a foot to one foot, right? But guess what? That then releases. It's like a backstop of a whole bunch of other glacial-type things behind it that will be speed up as a result of it. Not only that, there's another glacier down there, and this is the 900-pound gorilla in the room called the Totten Glacier. Mm -hmm. This one's 90 miles by 20 miles, irreversibly cascading. 
it'll raise sea level by 11 feet. So these things, I call it scary stuff. Yeah, no uh, doubt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got James Hansen, who's the world-renowned uh, uh, global climate scientist, uh, ran NASA for 30 years, right, until the Bush administration smeared him. And the Bush administration smeared him when he came out and talked about the White House hiding uh, evidence they had about the relationship between fossil fuels and, and perilous climate change. As a matter of fact, Hansen is involved in this children's lawsuit. I don't know if you've seen anything about that. Have you, against the government? No, I haven't, actually. There's a children's lawsuit. These are all kids. I mean, these are kids that are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age out of the uh, northwest coast of the United States that filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government uh, for abetting and causing climate change. And in their one of their uh, uh, biggest um, uh, witnesses is James Hansen. Well, uh, if you go and look at their, uh, their, uh, their, their, what do you call it, the legal filing, um, they uncovered some, some shocking admissions. And those shocking admissions are that the White House and the EPA have known since 1965 mm-hmm. that fossil fuels cause and create perilous climate change. That is scandalous. But that's part of the lawsuit. Now, speaking of James Hansen, and you know how we've got all these droughts and all this kind of you know heating up taking place all over the planet. Here's another scary fact for you, Eric. Um, Fifty years ago, if you talk about droughts, the drought portion of the planet covered less than two tenths of one percent. That's not really a whole lot today. It covers over 10, 10 to 12 percent of all landmass. And it's increasing. Desertification is increasing like crazy. It's over 25 percent of China today is going to desert. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that are related to what? Global warming. It's, it's, um, when you put it in that that kind of a perspective, it is uh, it, it is certainly terrifying. Um, before we go to break, I just want to touch on one other thing, and then and then we'll uh, take a break and come back. But this question about um, related what you're talking about these related phenomena, I think, is so often, um, if not deliberately omitted, then certainly not uh, made central to the conversation. For instance, you're talking about climate change, right? Well. Climate change is almost like this broad issue, uh, this this broad umbrella issue under which we can point to many other issues that we focus on. You mentioned drought, but I mean we've seen historic wildfires in the Northwest. I mean this is a this is a rainforest, and we see wildfires uh, like we've never seen before. As you mentioned, the drought in California, as we've seen in Australia, not only record temperatures and wildfires, but uh, species going extinct. And ecosystems being destroyed, desertification, ocean acidification, all of these things seem to be interconnected. And this is, you know, this is, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent about like Gaia theory and stuff and the earth as a living organism, but it certainly does seem to me that there is a lack of understanding about the interconnected nature of the global ecosystem. Yeah, well, you're right. And it is all interconnected, very much so. You're, you're right on the money there. It's exactly right, Eric. 
So, you know, anyway, why don't we just why don't we just jump into break because on the other side of the break I want to talk a little bit more about the personal issues here, the personal dynamic that I think is important, and then I want to touch on some other uh uh, you know, not so nice, not so not so pleasant uh things. So, anyway, let's take a break. On the other side of the break, continue the conversation with Robert Hunziker. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Robert Hunziker. Um, look, I'm not trying to spoil your day. <laughs> I'm not trying to, uh, you know, pardon the pun, but rain on your parade, whatever parade you might be participating in while you're listening to me. But the the reality is that these things are inescapable. These are issues that not only need to be discussed, but it is solutions that really need to be, I think, um, uh discussed and explored and really made central to our thinking. So, okay, Robert, before we started recording, I mentioned to you just my own personal uh, side of this. Um, as I as I embark on a new stage of my life, as many uh, quote-unquote millennials are doing, having children, getting married, starting families, buying homes, you know, be uh, choosing communities where they might want to live and so forth, 
these issues, I think maybe for the first time, are really, at least for somebody like me who's trying to pay attention to all of them, actually impacting how I make my decisions about these things. So I'm in the process of looking for a home as I expect a, as I expect a child to be born here, and I'm looking at well, wait a second, do I really want to live here? What happens if sea, if sea levels rise 5 or 10 or 15 meters? Is this a viable place for me to live for the next 25, 30, 50 years, the rest of my, you know, the rest of my life? Is this how I want to live out the future, where I want to raise a child? These questions, I think, for a lot of the scientists who are active in this, especially those who have been in it for a while, who maybe are older, sometimes they lose sight of the fact that young people are considering these issues in a very different way. So talk a little bit about that and how that needs to be part of the conversation as well. Well, uh, boy, uh, that goes to the heart of it, doesn't it? Um, And, um, you know, uh, there's a very famous climate scientist with Scripps uh, Institution of Oceanography named Ramanathan. Uh, And he's the advisor to people like Pope Francis and Governor Jerry Brown, and he was talking the other day, and this kind of hits home a little bit with what you're talking about, but he talked about the disasters that are going to occur because of climate change. He said it's not the next 100 years from now. It's not 50. It'll be the next 10 to 15 years from now. Yeah, exactly. That will, yeah, that will really hit the poorest 3 billion people. They're going to experience it hit hardest these major disasters. And of course, you can point your finger at Bangladesh and places like that where um, they're going to have uh, considerably more flooding and uh, as well as droughts. And, 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 and that's, you know, <laughs> when you really dig into this subject the way I have over the last number of years and look at the planet, what's happening, it, it just, you almost can't sleep nights. Um, the whole Mediterranean East Coast is, uh, has a serious drought that's ongoing that's abnormal. It's not a normal kind of a drought. And I talked about this at the top of this show. One of the breadbasket countries of the Middle East is Syria. Major breadbasket. And they've been decimated, decimated by drought. So uh, how will this affect us? Uh, I think one of the problems that we're all going to have is we're going to have this migrant problem that's only just started. Uh, you've got two, maybe three billion people around the planet. They're going to be searching for water and food and moving to areas where they can handle the temperatures. Uh, where do they go? Where do you put them? Uh, that's the bigger problem. Uh, on a, a, you know, our everyday life pattern, uh, we're just going to have to adapt to a more difficult environment, and we're going to have to scale back the type of economy we've got. We've got to get out of this neoliberal economic business about uh, profits, profits, profits. That's all that counts. No, it doesn't. Nature counts. Eco-economics count. Natural capital counts. We have to start working with natural capital instead of financial capital. And, um, you know, natural capital is a force. The harvest is the natural income. We have to have a balance with these things. I think I told you before we came on the air that the World Resources Institute, Eric, did a study, a very detailed study, and they talked about the average industrialized person 
requires five to 12 acres of productive land on this planet to stay with their current lifestyle, buying the car they want, the apartment they want, or the house they want, the food stuff, clothes, everything. That requires five to 12 acres of productive land per industrialized person on the planet. Here's the problem. There's only 3.7 acres per capita of ecologically productive land on the planet. So you've got a huge sustainability gap. In other words, 20% of the population of the world is consuming 100% of the ecological productive capital of the planet. And that's why you've got 2 to 3 billion people making $1 to $2 a day. There's no room for them. So we have to make room for people or we're going to have massive, you know, we're really going to go to a Mad Max type of a, did you see the recent Mad Max film? Yeah, I did. That's where we're headed. Okay. That, to me, that, that dystopian world is where we're headed. And I think we are headed there. So you've got to brace yourself and be ready for your kid. When your kid grows up, somehow they're going to have to live with that because it's coming. You know the other thing. The other thing that strikes me about having this conversation. It's not the first time I've had it. Well, not even the first time I've had it with you. It's not the first time I've had it with in general. Um, solutions are really what's important here, I think, and not just solutions in terms of like stopgap solutions, you know. But I mean long-term solutions that fundamentally change the calculus of of, of what you're describing. Because I agree. Uh, despite, you know, the sort of um, uh, Malthusian uh, logic behind it, I agree with the, with, the, with the conclusions, I agree with all of that. However, we have to also keep in mind that one of the uh, most potent tools that human beings have is innovation, it's technology, it's harnessing technology, and that seems to be at least from my perspective, one of the saving graces in all of this is that it we have to force ourselves towards technological innovation that changes that calculus, that changes the way that we uh, uh, interact. Uh, human civilization, meaning, interacts with the with the global ecosystem, with the global environment. So, I was mentioning to you before we started recording here about things like uh, translucent solar cells. You know, where if one could imagine every window in your house generating power, every window in a skyscraper in lower Manhattan, where there are tens of millions of windows everywhere you look, if they were generating power, what would that do? What would that allow us to do as far as getting away from fossil fuels, as far as breaking out of the either fossil fuel or nuclear fuel paradigm or coal or what have you? I think things like that, sustainable agriculture, sustainable development, new ways of actually building our communities. These are the kinds of things that people really need to be discussing, and I know that they are, but unfortunately, I think to a large extent, Robert, it's sort of relegated to this almost like, it's like a lifestyle choice rather than an absolute effing necessity. Right. Well, you're, 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 I think you're onto something when you talk about um, uh, solar panels on windows, and I think that's the direction we're headed. And I think that's your glimmer of hope. Uh, and I think that glimmer is fairly bright, not dim. Um, if you look at what they term these days the global advanced energy market, uh, in 2015, it hit a record of $1.4 trillion in total revenues. Now, that includes everything green, energy efficiency, wind, solar, electric vehicles, smart grids, all that type of stuff. And... Um, 
So that amount of revenue for the global advanced energy market is twice as big for comparison purposes as the airline industry. It's bigger than the apparel fashion industry, and it's growing three times faster than the world economy. This is the best news we can possibly hear, the best news we can possibly hear. Here in the United States, our global advanced energy market was $200 billion in 19, I mean, 2015 last year. Well, that's twice the size of the beer market, okay? almost as big as the pharmaceutical industry. So this is really coming on very strong, and my prediction is that Elton Musk, you know who he is, of, of uh, Tesla, Tesla yep. uh, is going to end up on Mount Rushmore one day. Uh, and the reason I say that is he's, he's a visionary, a wonderful visionary. He's our Alexander Graham Bell, if you will, of our era. Um, he um, is building a plant in Nevada with Panasonic. Uh, it's a huge thing, and they're going to build all of these really beautiful, slick-looking batteries that you can take and put up on the wall of your garage in your home and hook your solar panels to it and store your own electricity so that when nighttime comes, you flip a, you, you, it, it automatically feeds your house. You have 24-7 power. You're your own utility. That's where we're headed with this. That is remarkable. That is going to just change the whole planet. Well, there's, now, a, this, there's, there's a political dimension to this, though, Robert, that we have to keep in mind because the technology is almost never the problem. It's the economics. It is the, it is the insatiable lust for profit and capital uh, accumulation and all of these things. That is, I think, what really restrains the kind of innovation that is necessary to address a lot of these things. So for just one example, in the second part of this program, um, I'm speaking with John LaForge about uh, five years on in Fukushima and the dangers of the uh, nuclear power and uh, we talk a lot about um, Indian Point, which is very close to home for me. That's a nuclear plant, one of the oldest in the world, that is 25 miles from New York City and is quite literally a ticking time bomb, which is, as we speak, leaking uh, into the groundwater, leaking tritium into the groundwater, potentially causing an irreparable damage to the to the Hudson Valley. And this is this is precisely the kind of problem that is political in nature because it, it, it is an economic as well because it is vested interests that are keeping that plant going keeping that ticking time bomb ticking rather than allowing New York State including the political establishment in New York State to shut the damn thing down and these kinds of obstacles I think increasingly are hindering uh, not only human progress, but increasingly, I think, need to be addressed because the fact of the matter is once this catastrophe becomes irreversible, those things are going to be, I, I, I think, um, moot, moot points. Well, I, I think we're going to have uh, a version of the French Revolution that's going to take place. I'm mean, talking politics now. It's going to be forced upon us. Um, and, you know, I've, uh, I'm a student of the French Revolution, and, of course, uh, when the people in the city of Paris no longer could obtain even a loaf of bread, um, that, the next step is beheading the aristocrats. And uh, that's what happened. Um, now, um, these things get forced on society. That was forced, really, in a sense, kind of forced on society. 
uh, we're forcing, we're going to force onto our society a political change. And, uh, you know, someone like, uh, uh, I know that uh, a lot of progressives uh, aren't crazy about Bernie. And I understand the arguments, both sides of it. But he's saying a lot of truth in a lot of what he says. I, I like a lot of what he's preaching to the public. And that's kind of a just an early stage uh, um, warning signal to the public that things are not right. I think in time, when we have some major planetary catastrophes take place that are big enough to knock people over the head, and maybe it'll be too late by then, um, that uh, politics are going to be forced to be changed one way or another uh, in this country. You know, Chris Hedges is calling for outright revolution. And um, uh, he's uh, one of the people who praises uh, Counterpunch, by the way, and talks about what a valuable tool it is for people uh, to understand where we're really, what, what truth is. And um, uh, you're starting to get, uh, that's kind of seeping into the network out there of what people hear and think about. So I don't know how much longer these neocons and right-wing crazy Republican politicians, and there are some, several on the Democratic side as well, can hang in there. I think they're hanging by their fingertips right now. Um, and uh, let's hope that the public wises up. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to nerd out here a little bit. And um, I think last time we spoke, I mentioned um, the great science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson when we were talking about eco-economics and his Mars trilogy books. And one of the things that's really great about it is the historiography that takes place um, in, I guess it's like the 23rd century. And these, these historians are trying to write the history of the previous couple of centuries. And they refer to the period that we're living in here in the, you know, in the, in the here and now, they refer to this period as quote unquote the dithering and I think it's really uh, a great way of looking at it because in the narrative of those books and I you know spoiler alert I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna explain exactly what happens but certain changes environmental and global climatic and environmental changes that take place which force a complete uh, restructuring of human civilization and human society such that it leads to these uh, great uh, you know uh, innovations of the future including you know expanding to other planets and 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 so forth but I think that that notion of thinking of the period that we're living through right now as a dithering period, as a period in which almost like, you know, a Cassandra complex where we have an idea of what's coming but are powerless to stop it. That feeling, I think, is very pervasive right now. And the question is whether or not we're going to be able to be active uh, in terms of, um, you know, altering that future before it's too late. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we've got to get rid of the spirit of Milton Friedman and neoliberalism, uh, which was prompted and promoted by Reagan and Thatcher. And the Republican Party has latched onto that ever since. And all they can talk about is everything. Uh, the big fat arrow at the end of the day points at profits for major corporations. That's all that counts in society. Got to get rid of that thinking. Got to get rid of that mindset. We've got to get rid of neoliberalism. It's killing the planet. It's going to kill us. And that's uh, it's it's a it's a, a, a 
by by plunder. It's like the Huns, like Attila the Hun, hitting the economy. That's what neoliberalism is. It's similar to Attila the Hun hitting Europe, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, that's what we've got. We've got to get rid of it. Well, the other thing I want to just uh, mention to you before be, before we sign off here is this question of solutions and the le- and, and at what level we can be implementing solutions because one of the things that is particularly important to me is the idea that solutions aren't simply global in nature. They're when they're global, it is cumulative because the solutions can also be local solutions, and I think that that's where we are really empowered even right now is to try to implement local solutions whether you're talking just individually for yourself and your family whether you're talking getting together with your friends in your community and finding new ways of doing things these are the kinds of things that that's where technology is going to be leveraged and really fundamentally change the the you know the environmental reality um we see all kinds of really interesting things happening whether it's from 3D printing, whether it's from fiber optic uh, technology, whether it's from smart homes, the Internet of Things, and all of these other new concepts which are emerging, they can have a major impact at the local level. And if you and if you uh, look at it cumulatively, many local changes become global change. Yeah, you're you're exactly. It's very well put. In, in other words, people need to take the put the bit in their own teeth and run with it and make things happen and talk about this with friends and, and, and acquaintances and, 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 and think about it. You know, uh, we, we, these are serious, serious matters that need to be dealt with and everybody can help. And if they talk to their best friend or talk to their family about it, make people aware. Awareness is the first step, always the first step. Then you get to a final step. And if you look at like Jacobson, the professor out of Stanford, has put together a brilliant, brilliant thesis and plan whereby our entire country can go 100% renewable uh, with a current existing technology uh, within the next three or four decades. That is the kind of thing where we need to, we need to head in that direction. That's the kind of politics we need as well. We need politicians who say to us, yes, uh, Stanford University has already got my my, my my economic plan laid out for me, which is going to create a lot of jobs, and it's going to affect in a positive way our entire country. We're going to go 100% renewable. Absolutely. Well, the only the only thing left to say, though, there is um, let's hope let's hope that we can see that kind of change before it's too late. I know. I know. Well, that's why you need to keep fighting away here, Eric, and stay on top of this and expose it to people. And uh, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Thanks, Robert. I would say the same to you. Robert Hunziker, freelance writer, environmental journalist, regular contributor to Counterpunch. Follow his work there. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Robert, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Eric. Keep up the good work. Listeners, stick with us on the other side of the break. John LaForge talking nuclear power, Fukushima five years later, and much, much more. Stick with us.
Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and it is my pleasure to introduce my next guest on the program today. Um, I'm very excited to speak with him, John LaForge. He is the co-founder of NukeWatch, a very important organization based out of Wisconsin. Um, This is a peace and environmental justice group, and John is the editor of their newsletter. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to the newsletter, follow NukeWatch, follow John LaForge's contribution regularly in Counterpunch. John LaForge, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much, Eric. So there's a lot to cover here. Uh, just speaking solely about the nuclear, you know, nuclear energy issue, nuclear safety issue, so many things kind of swirling about in the media, in the alternative media, or maybe a better way of saying that is so many things not being discussed about this issue in the media. But before we get into some of the more recent news, I do want to uh, note here, as we're speaking, we're just coming up on the five-year anniversary of this monumental disaster that we uh, affectionately refer to as Fukushima. Um, So I want to ask you, as we mark this five-year anniversary of this real devastating event, what do we know now that wasn't known, that hasn't made it into the media? What is the latest developments in regard to Fukushima that people really need to be aware of? Oh, that's a great question, uh, especially because, as you point out, the U.S. media is not covering the events at Fukushima virtually at all anymore. You have to read the uh, Japanese newspapers online to find out what's going because they uh, report on the disaster almost every day. There's a new event. The very newest information, which was reported uh, just this morning, is that three senior, former senior executives at the uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company, which owns and operates the uh, 
destroyed reactors there have been criminally indicted for criminal negligence uh, by uh, <clears throat> Tokyo District Court, uh, which allege uh, the uh, indictment alleges that they uh, ignored and refused to respond to uh, warnings early on about the inadequacy, one, of the seawall, uh, the uh, fact that the seawall was too low to handle a uh, serious tsunami wave, uh, which was predicted for years in advance of the one that hit March 11th to 2011, and secondly, for not uh, moving the uh, generators, um, the emergency diesel backup generators, out from uh, the floodplain underneath the uh, reactor buildings, which uh, they were placed there uh, thanks to uh, General Electric, which built the reactors for Japan there, uh, just in order to save money. They should have been elevated uh, and away from the reactor site because of the fact that the tsunami flood wave then flooded out these generators, knocked them offline uh, right away, and uh, caused the station blackout, which then prevented cooling water from getting to the fuel and the uh, waste in the cooling pools and uh, resulted in the overheating and the meltdown of three reactors. Right. So basically, we know that there was a, a level of negligence. We know that uh, aside from just the obvious design flaws and the negligence, though, we're seeing, I mean, if you're following the the, um, the situation there, we're seeing reports that are so incredibly terrifying. I can't even begin to express, for instance, uh, permanent leakage into the, into the groundwater, seeping into the seawater, uh, that being carried by, you know, by the natural process processes of the ocean. There's an open question how much of that radiation is now impacting the entire Pacific Ocean. So can we broaden this out a little bit and talk about the environmental impacts that we know are going on? And then I guess what we could say we assume might be going on if we had some kind of real hard uh, study on this. Yes, we know that uh concentration of one isotope in particular, cesium-137, as well as cesium-134, uh, has increased sixfold in the Pacific Ocean over what was there already from the uh, fallout of resulting from atmospheric bomb testing in the 50s and the 60s. The amount of cesium concentrated in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, according to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and Ken Busler there, who's been doing this follow-up for five years, uh, has increased six-fold. This information isn't very well known. Uh, the fact is that cesium uh, will stay in the environment for roughly 300 years. And as such, in the ocean environment, it will be uh, bio-concentrated in fish as small fish eat contaminated material in the ocean, and then those fish are subsequently eaten by larger fish. That's why within 12 months of the original disaster, uh, bluefin tuna that had traveled 4,000 miles across the ocean were found to be contaminated with cesium from the Fukushima catastrophe. Uh, those fish eat a lot of smaller fish. Tuna travel also very quickly, and they cross the ocean uh, in a matter of months. And so what we're seeing is the uh, bioaccumulation of this material, which will now go on for 300 years. And the uh, plume of cesium that traveled much slower than the tuna 
was now just last November uh, detected off the uh, west coast of the United States for the first time. And uh, so the uh, the fact that this material is salted throughout the entire Pacific Ocean is just proof positive of what the uh, Oceanographic Institute called the, the largest accidental dump of radionuclides in the ocean in human history. This is obviously unprecedented. It, it isn't being well enough reported or studied as far as we're concerned, although just on February 26th, uh, Greenpeace International launched a major investigation into the effects of the Fukushima leakage on the Pacific Ocean. And they had with them, uh, with the launch of this investigation, the former Prime Minister Naoto Kan of Japan, who was Prime Minister when the event uh, began in 2011. And he has said uh, with Greenpeace, I once believed Japan's advanced technology would prevent a nuclear accident like Chernobyl from happening in Japan, but it did not. And I was faced with the very real crisis of having to evacuate 50 million people, that is the uh, entire city of Tokyo and its surrounding areas. Instead, he says, we should shift to safer and cheaper renewable energy with potential business opportunities for future generations. So this is a former prime minister who is overseeing 50 nuclear reactors in Japan, was completely turned around on this, just as the Germans have, Italians and other countries who have agreed to phase out all their nuclear reactors. Well, here's th there's a couple of questions, and I want to return to the uh, the political aspect of this in a second. But it's very hard to first of all, let me just say that when this happened, and I was you know I was really kind of just getting into the issue and really trying to study it. I mean, I had people who just outright dismissed the issue, said I was a conspiracy theorist for saying that there was a massive cover-up going on in Japan, that they were deliberately uh, downplaying the seriousness of what happened. They were downplaying the impacts to the Pacific Ocean, to the surrounding ecosystem, not just around Fukushima, but really all around the, uh, the, the Asia-Pacific region. And all of this seems to have been borne out by the facts over the course of the last five years. So I want to ask you this question then. What we know about Fukushima now, can we now say without a doubt that we saw a, and continue to see an ongoing cover-up of this issue? I mean, I don't know what other word to use to describe it. Oh, I believe you're, you're not exaggerating at all to say that. In fact, the New York Times Tokyo correspondent uh, covering this issue at the time written a small book. It's only available in J Japanese, unfortunately. But this Times correspondent has written a small book called The Crisis in Japanese Newspaper Journalism After Fukushima. And he's documented the disinformation, the misinformation, the downplaying, the minimization, and the outright lying about not just the effects of low-dose radiation exposure, but what the company knew at the time of the disaster refused to disclose. Most recently, they, the Tokyo Electric Power Company officials admitted that they should have told the public that there were three meltdowns underway uh, when they knew it, which was two months prior to when they finally admitted it. You know, a meltdown of reactor fuel inside a reactor is the worst-case scenario. In this case, yeah. three reactors doing it simultaneously at one place is, in our estimation, the worst radiological accident in history, worse than Chernobyl, which is hardly ever acknowledged because of the density of population in Japan and the effects on the ocean. Yeah, and that's the other thing about this that, that is so uh, disturbing is that 
because of the lack of study, because of the lack of exposure, it's difficult to even quantify the impact that Fukushima, that the disaster has had on the Pacific. For instance, I mean, I feel like every single day I come across stories of mass die-offs of, of, of uh, fish in the sea or, uh, uh, you know, various other issues from acidification to all kinds of other things that we're seeing happening. And, and we have some pretty good science on some of these phenomena, but it's almost like the elephant in the room is Fukushima. And how much has Fukushima really impacted a lot of these other ecosystem breakdowns that we're seeing in the Pacific? Yeah, it's very hard to tag uh, these ocean die-offs directly to uh, the Fukushima cesium in the ocean uh, because of the fact that there's so much pollution in the ocean now and there's so much electromagnetic radiation and other problems that are caused by, uh, you know, our modern communication systems interfering with, say, the the ability of whales to communicate or even to navigate anymore, that any number of things can be causing these die-offs. There are things that we very well do know, though, and that is that Large amounts of radioactivity were dispersed across northeast Japan, and the food and the rice and livestock and livestock feed were severely contaminated with cesium, with iodine-131, and other isotopes, and that much of this food, even babies' infant formula, was contaminated with cesium. It was dispersed and sold to parents around the country for many, many weeks before it was discovered. So these things will have health impacts on infants, children, and pregnant women and adults of all kinds over the long haul because of the fact that it was consumed. Another problem we we have with, say, your friends telling you you're a conspiracy theorist, theorist or whatever and you're paranoid is that there's an ongoing scientific debate about the difference between external radiation exposure and internal exposure and the severity of internal exposure is pretty well understood now to be much more than an external exposure the uh, scientist uh, chris busby who works with low level radiation campaign in england he makes the analogy of uh, this exactly just imagine you're sitting in front of a nice toasty fire you know roasting marshmallow or something now that you could compared to external radiation exposure and internal exposure would be like taking one of the hot coals and popping it into your mouth. The difference is that these radionuclides can lodge in internal organs or in the bone where they irradiate surrounding tissues or bone for many, many months or years. And even the smallest isotope, even a single one, can ultimately result in the creation of a cancer. So all this internal contamination by eating contaminated food, drinking contaminated water in Japan and on the west coast of the United States will eventually have uh, health effects. Some scientists like Joe Mangano with the uh, radiation campaign in New York City has documented already in, in published journal articles a uh, increase in infant mortality on the west coast because of the exposure to iodine-131 that wafted across the ocean rapidly during the meltdowns. Now, the question that I would have, and I'm perfectly comfortable uh, buying that, and I haven't looked at that study, and so I can't speak to it, but 
the question that I would have is the, you know, quote unquote skeptics would push back and say that there could be any number of causes that would account for, you know, a, a slight increase in infant mortality, including economic impacts, including wa- the, the water crisis and a whole host of other issues. So this is part of the problem with Fukushima and uh, just with the with the nuclear radiation question in general is it's so difficult to pinpoint precisely cause and effect uh, relationships when it comes to that because it's so dispersed, because it's so, um, I guess, intertwined with so many other issues. That's right. There are other pollutants that we're exposed to day in and day out. The other problem is that there's often such a long latency period right. between the time of your exposure and the incidence of a cancer or a related uh, immune deficiency disorder. That, that is really the uh, key to have to uh, having saved the nuclear industry from collapse a long time ago is the latency period can sometimes be 30 years and so there's no way to prove that your cancer came from a particular exposure at that point. Right, exactly. Now, there's another question here that that has to be addressed and we sort of were alluding to it earlier um you mentioned just the news today uh, as we're speaking, um, the TEPCO employees, the, the Tokyo Electric Power Company employees who have been indicted for their negligence. Now, that we're talking five years after the fact this is now happening, but that's not really the issue, is it? We're, those are low-level individuals. We also need to really consider the massive political cover-up that took place there. It's not simply negligence and irresponsibility. We're talking outright willful lying and conspiracy to cover up a massive health emergency. Now, I don't, I'm not going to be holding my breath for any legal accountability for any of the people who were involved up to and including the prime minister. That's right. And uh, internationally, we see the International Atomic Energy Agency in Geneva coming with reports that give a clean bill of health and a PEPCO on the back for their emergency response effectiveness and whatnot. And these reports are the ones, say, that your friend like to glom onto and say that, uh, for example, IAEA said any increase in the incidence of cancer in Japan won't be detectable uh, beyond what increases normally to be expected just from living in the modern polluted era that we are in. Now, this is a real misstatement of facts because they, in one sense, admit that there will be an increase caused by exposure to this radiation, but they claim it won't be detectable or uh, be able to be separated from the normal incidents. Well, the uh, International Physicians for Social Responsibility have uh, produced a detailed deconstruction of that IAEA, or what we would call a whitewash, in a very professional way. It's, I encourage your listeners to find that uh, international PSR report where they just took apart the IAEA for its bias, for its refusal to look at several studies that have already been completed, and the fact that uh, IAEA would come out with such a report is quite typical. They did the same thing after Chernobyl mm-hmm. because their mandate is to both uh, warn people about the effects of nuclear power's downside as well as promote nuclear power. So they're starting out with a conflict of interest to begin with. Now tell us again where, where people can find that report. PSR, what is that, and where should they look on Google? They should check uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility or Great. PSR.org, and they can look for their analysis of the 
analysis of the IAEA report on Fukushima. Excellent. 2014. Definitely. I'll try to include that in the show notes if I can, because I think that's very important. Um, one of the things that we're doing here, um, not just, you know, here on, on this episode, but in general, is we're trying to break through what is an obvious, um, if not complete media blackout. I think that's probably an overstatement at this point, but certainly a an, an attempt to gloss over, if not totally uh, omit from the narrative what's happened in Fukushima. And one of the other things that I want to say before we move on, it shows us the power of not of alternative media uh, journalism. It shows us the power of um, citizen activists who really worked hard to break through this case and to break through the conspiracy of silence. And I think just based on my own research, it's because of citizen journalists and scientists, concerned citizens in Japan and in the United States, really breaking through that, that we've actually forced some of these uh, points to be conceded by the authorities. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit and the importance of breaking that media, uh, um, what should we call it, conspiracy of silence, I suppose? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, there's a terrific group in Japan that's been around for 25 years now. They warned of these uh, tsunamis and earthquake problems with nuclear power all along. Uh, they were, of course, ignored. That's part of the reason for the indictment against these executives. Uh, and they are the Citizens uh, Nuclear Information System in our uh, service in Tokyo. And then in this country, I recommend uh, checking out the website of beyondnuclear.org. They always have an update on what's happening, the newest information from Fukushima, as well as the, as well as the um, Tacoma Park, Maryland-based grouping institute, for Environmental and Energy, I'm sorry, the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research in Maryland. The president is Arjun Makajani, and they uh, have a terrific website with science-based information about Fukushima as well. But the, uh, the best recommendation is to check out the Asahi Shinbun newspaper, which is online in English every day, to see what, and the Japan Times as well, to see the latest information of what's going on in Japan. You know, one of the most serious problems over there right now is dealing with 22 million cubic meters of radioactive waste that's been scraped up, topsoil that's collected, uh, rice straw that's been collected, sludge from incinerators and incinerator ash that's been collected, and, uh, and the government is pushing hard with uh, $80 million bribes mm -hmm. to get local communities to agree to be permanent waste disposals for this material, disposal sites. And they... Uh, They've gotten two communities in Fukushima Prefecture to agree, but they're looking at six other sites which are adamantly opposed to becoming target zones for, a, you know, an underground dump site for this material. And uh, so these incinerators are actively burning radioactive material from you know, the fallout material that was collected by scraping up topsoil. All over the country, these incinerators are uh, spreading this stuff to the winds now. And then much of the radioactive material doesn't combust and it ends up in the incinerator ash which then again still has to be dealt with as radioactive waste these problems are going to go on for decades 
Yeah, exactly right. And just a final point on on that before we move on, um, because we do have a lot of other things I want to cover. Um, just earlier this month, um, while well, we're speaking here, the last day of February, so February thirteenth in the national in National Geographic headline: How Citizen Science Changed the Way Fukushima Radiation Is Reported. And I mean, I'm not going to get into all the specifics about uh, in this article, but you know, a researchers at Keio University in Japan at the Wide Project, the MIT. Media Lab, the Civic Media Center, Center, uh, and they co-founded this uh, citizen science network called SafeCast, dedicated to the measurement and distribution of accurate levels of radiation around the world, especially in Fukushima. Now, what we're talking about here are, are, are real scientists doing real work as basically a side gig, as basically public service. Now, the fact that we can't depend on our authorities, uh, those elected officials and those regulatory commissions and so forth to do all of this, I think tells us not only about a political failure, but, you know, uh, from my perspective, it also tells us about the capitalist motivation here, about profit, about needing to safeguard profit, and about jeopardizing millions of people for decades into the future solely to guard the profits of a very small number of people. Yeah, and that's why people like to point to Japan and and complain about their cozy relationship that took place for decades between the regulatory agency there in the in the government and the operators of the reactors when in fact the very same relationship exists between the US nuclear regulatory commission and reactor operators here A lengthy report done by the associated press a reporter named Jeffrey Dunn about two years ago, detailed how the Nuclear Regulatory Commission repeatedly weakened regulations in order to save these reactor operators money whenever the uh, operation of these facilities turned out to be less than par. Instead of forcing the committee, the uh, operators to bring their reactors up to regulations, they instead weaken the regulations. Well, that's and exactly... This that. happened not just in Japan, but all over the United States as well. Well, and, and that leads me right into the next point here, because that's exactly what we've seen in the United States over and over again, particularly with regard to some of the, what what I guess I would call, and I don't know what the industry term would be, but what I would call these really, really high-risk uh, nuclear plants and nuclear reactors, such as San Onofre in Southern California, such as... Indian point here in New York, and that really uh, kind of leads me into this question, because just in the last couple of weeks, we now have reports about a, a significant leak going on at Indian Point, leaking potentially, a di- well, directly into the groundwater on the on the grounds of Indian Point facility, but potentially contaminating groundwater in the surrounding area and or into the Hudson River itself. Now, if anybody doubts uh, the you know the validity of this, I mean, even Governor Cuomo of New York, who is by no means a progressive, probably one of the most reactionary Democrat governors there is, he is now openly calling for serious investigation into this and potentially you know some kind of legal action being taken. Now, whether or not we believe that'll happen is somewhat uh, I, I think maybe far fetched. But in any event, what can you tell us about Indian Point? What they're saying about this this uh, leakage of tritium into the groundwater. Uh, what do you know and what should people know? Well, tritium, uh, people should know, is the radioactive form of hydrogen. It's produced in great quantities inside operating nuclear reactors 
and as well inside the waste fuel that's kept in cooling ponds at many of these uh, reactor sites after it's been used in the reactor. The hot waste fuel is kept in pools to let it cool for several years before it can be uh, robotically moved into different containers. Well, this tritium has got a radioactive half-life of 12 years or so, which means it stays in the environment for 120 years. And it uh, moves in the water table very easily at being a form of water. Um, the uh, the well that was so alarmingly uh, discovered just this past month showed that the increase in tritium was 65,000%. That is uh, what the readings were prior to this alarming discovery, was 65,000% higher, or 8 million picocuries per liter. It's kind of scientific, but uh, now, I just way wanna... to look at it is four, 400 times the drinking water limit set by the Environmental Protection Agency. And I just want to a... clarify uh, for people who don't know necessarily, when you say 6,500%, increase we're talking increase over what would be considered naturally occurring in the water oh no 65,000% oh, increase 65, over what was what was uh, being registered earlier this reactor has uh-huh. found to have been leaking uh, tritium into groundwater already this was just a renewal of the same complaint that's why the right. governor uh, has been calling for uh, the shut down of this reactor, not just the governor, but hundreds of thousands of people for many years. It's uh, common knowledge that 25 miles from the city of New York, this is a hazardous a hazardous risk that doesn't need to be taken any longer. The well, governor I mean, finally has agreed. They're using, they're using phrases like ticking time bomb, and we're talking uh, the, the, the New York Post, a, a right-wing rag in New York, certainly not you know some kind of progressive media outlet at all, and they're talking about you know ticking time bomb. We've seen, we've seen reports indicating that uh, not only was this in one monitoring well, but in at least three different wells in three totally different parts uh, of the uh, the grounds of the nuclear plant. So at least there's an indication that this is a very widespread phenomenon. And then, of course, the, the secondary point here is that, uh, you know, contaminated groundwater knows no territorial boundaries because it's just because it's being monitored on the grounds of the nuclear plant doesn't mean that it hasn't gone well beyond that contaminating the groundwater seeping into the soil all through Westchester County. That's a very good point. Uh, that's excellent. David Lockbaum is a scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists, was interviewed by the New York Times for this latest story, and he points out that tritium is just the first item reported when these accidents happen. He says it tends to be the leading edge of any spill since it is the lightest and most mobile of the radioactive contaminants that are mm-hmm. coming out of this these fuel rods. He says the other isotopes slow down as they go through soil. That other stuff is on its way, however. Tritium just wins the race. As I was saying, <clears throat> it moves, pardon me, quickly through water. Um, and this is just, as I said, the, the most recent of a little string of terrible practices that this company's been conducting for years. In 2008, Entergy, which runs the place, uh, reported it had intentionally released 877 curies that's a huge amount of radioactivity, of liquid radioactive effluent into the Hudson River. And in 2005, a leak from a crack in its on-site waste storage pond prompted energy to dig these dozens of test wells that now show this 
yeah. sixty-five thousand percent increase in exactly. Iridium. And 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 the insane thing, John, the insane thing about this is that we have all of these reports. It's documented what happened in 2000, 2005. And then if correct me if I'm wrong, but then in 2007, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission comes along and says, "Eh, you're fine. We'll renew your lease. That's right. Although the state of New York is trying to uh, do an end around and uh, keep the plant from being relicensed for an additional 20 years of operation. Uh, but, by but, imposing a, a water uh, statute that's uh, a state statute and make that stick. But there's there's a real question here, just at, on the purely political level. This is a, a a federal agency, right, that is in effect overriding, in a sense, the state's ability and rights to control environmental regulations that have uh, direct impact on the citizens. So there is a, a, a political, let's, you know, for lack of a better word, jurisdiction battle going on here. Yeah, there is. There obviously is. The NRC would like to... Uh pretend that uh, everything's repairable there and that they can keep this old jalopy going for another 20 years uh, and fight off these uh, attempts by state agencies to uh, make the place safer or, in fact, shut it down. Absolutely. Um, Well, I'm wondering, John, can you stick with us for uh, another uh, quick segment after the break? Is that all right? Oh, that'd be fine, sure. Wonderful. So stick with us because I, I, I mean... There's so much more I want to discuss, and I want to hit a couple of other key points. So stick with us on the other side of the break. Uh, You're listening to Counterpunch Radio, my conversation with John LaForge. Again, follow the work of this important organization, NukeWatch. Subscribe to the newsletter. And um, what else can I say? Stick with us. We'll be right back. Enough is enough, is enough. 
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with John LaForge. He is the co-founder of Nuke Watch, a peace and environmental justice group based in Wisconsin. Get on their newsletter, their mailing list, follow their materials. Uh, of course, there's a wealth of information there and obviously, you know, tips on other places to go, other, um, you know, organizations, other individuals to follow. Uh, a lot we've already covered there in that in that uh, first segment here, but I do want to I do want to continue if we could very briefly um Indian Point the problem with Indian Point here in New York is and this is something that always comes up when you bring it up and I bring it up with um you know people who are more focused on economic issues I bring it up with uh people who are pro nuclear I mean it <laughs> I almost, I almost am boggled. To, my mind is boggled to even consider that people can still think that way, but they are, and there, and there are many people who think that way. So here's the question: I am told, or we in New York, where I live, are told endlessly that yes, we all know that Indian Point is a ticking time bomb. Yes, we all know the potentially devastating impacts of a major incident there. But at the end of the day, Indian Point accounts for 25% of the power used in Westchester County and in New York City. So what can we do besides that? And I just want to give you a chance, if you could, John, just touch on that argument and how it is that we as uh, anti-nuclear minded people should respond to that because, you know, it's very easy to say, well, we should have renewable energy, we should have this, we should have that. But when they get to that hard economic question, how is it that we in New York are supposed to respond to that? Yeah, that's a good question. And people do need to know. In this case, we have a question to answer in ourselves. Is it worth our energy, our effort to impose or voluntary, voluntarily accept efficiency and conservation measures, uh, radical ones, in order to turn off this ticking time bomb. Uh, it's easily done in California. Voluntary measures have been so successful in terms of energy efficiency and conservation that the need for the nuclear reactors operating in the ring of fire out there has been completely obviated, and that can be done in New York, too. It just involves a public education campaign, which uh, the industry is working hard to prevent. We would have to overcome all the uh, commercial interests that want to sell us uh, poison power and convince us that we need a giant refrigerator and yeah. inefficient light bulbs, and the, the most easily changed things that we can do to save uh, enormous amounts of electricity. The Harvard Business School said 20 years ago that 34% of the energy used in the United States is incidental, while nuclear reactors only provide us 20% of the electricity that we use. So the need for them is completely obviated by these fundamental studies that show we can save electricity very easily. Well, yeah, and not only that, one of the things that always really blows me away, um, and I'll just present one of the other counter arguments that uh, a lot of these people make. They'll say, well, you see that uh, you obviously you don't care about climate change if you want to shut down the nuclear plants because the, the nuclear plants are a much better alternative to the burning of fossil fuels, which leads to climate change. And it's almost like, you know, um, you know, do you do you want to do you want to take this poison or do you want to shoot yourself in the head? 
You know, I mean, it's that it's that sort of a a dilemma that you're presented with. And I always say that, you know, the technology already exists to get away from these sorts of technologies. And I'm not just talking about, you know, wind power, which uh, uh, has its own set of problems and would be deeply problematic in a place like New York City metropolitan area. Um, The same is true for solar, which is very, you know, capital and energy intensive at its initial stages. But I mean, I was just reading in the uh, um, in a in a journal somewhere. MIT, they now have developed and they now have working prototypes of translucent solar panels. That is to say, you know, um, photovoltaic paneling that is absolutely 100% just like glass, clear. Now, I work in Lower Manhattan in a in a tall office building surrounded by office buildings with hundreds of thousands of windows on each building all over Lower Manhattan. If they were fitted with windows that were generating power, you've solved your problem right there using cutting-edge technology. But you see, the problem is, just as we've seen with alternative energy for automobiles, the problem is that the vested interests and the interests of profit don't want to see technological breakthroughs breakthroughs that leverage this new uh, forms of energy production for obvious reasons. Capacity of wind generation now worldwide just reached, uh, we just published this in our brand new newsletter, went to press today, uh, 432 gigawatts. So so the first time ever, uh, wind power topped nuclear electricity production for the first time. Now, this is the wave of the future. uh, And nuclear power does contribute to climate change by heating up so much water. The volumes of water used to cool these monstrous machines is enormous, and it's sucked cold out of large bodies of water, returned much hotter, and the industry never mentions the fact that it heats up the water in such enormous amounts. The question that I have is... um... We know all of this, and I think that if, you, if you've been listening this far to our conversation, you're probably uh, of a you know, somewhat uh, agreeable you know, mindset. So my question then is, where do we stand on the anti-nuclear movement? I, you know, it's something that I feel like to some degree almost has receded into memory for a lot of people. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of people like yourself and people all over the United States, all over uh, the world who are working on this, but it doesn't seem to grab the headlines, uh, even within progressive circles. So how would you describe the current state of the anti-nuclear movement and where it's going? I, I do wish it was bigger than it seems to be these days, although uh, there are independent anti-nuclear groups working, as you point out, in every community all over the world and trying to bring attention to the downside and the, the risks that are posed by operating reactors. The uh, group I mentioned earlier that I couldn't uh, get exactly straight is called Citizens Nuclear Information Center, CNIC, in Japan. And uh, they are a group of scientists basically trying to bring independent information to the Japanese public about what's happened at Fukushima. There's groups like this all over this country. The uh, climate march that happened in New York City uh, in 2014 had a major contingent of anti-nuclear activists there organized by Beyond Nuclear and the Nuclear Energy Information Service uh, pointing out that uh, reactors to produce electricity just can't be built fast enough to have any significant impact on climate change. And 
effort to build those, sinking so many hundreds of billions of dollars into a nuclear renaissance would actually rob money from, as you pointed out, workable solutions like wind and solar that don't pose these risks and don't produce these million-year lifespan of hazardous waste that needs to be containerized. Well, one of the other things... uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just want to point out for listeners. One of the other things that we're contending with, though, is some very powerful, very influential voices who, in my view, have taken the worst position on this issue. For instance, you know, the... the, I guess you could call him the the rock star of the climate climate change, you know, movement. James Hansen is very much on the record as, you know, being pro-nuclear uh, and it's it's a very problematic position. We have other people, you know, George Monbiot and many others who have been advocating this stuff. And it's very difficult when you when you you know find people who are active voices against climate change and uh, pro environmentalism, and at the very same time pushing these completely outdated and highly destructive forms of quote unquote alternative energy. Yeah, if you could snap your fingers and have uh, 1,600 new reactors built overnight, it, it would perhaps cut down in the, the equivalent, then would, you would have to shut down the equivalent number of coal generators to actually make an impact. But that can't be done. The 400 or so reactors operating around the country, or around the world, I'm sorry, are old now. They have to be replaced. These people who talk about nuclear being the bridge preventing climate chaos don't seem to be addressing the fact that you'd have to replace the 400 reactors now operating with new ones. You'd have to build 1,600 in total to even come to 20% of the uh, electrical demand around the world to have a significant impact on climate change. And that involves building so many reactors so fast that it just cannot be done unless you cookie cutter them and then you're you're building little time bombs all over the place which aren't built well enough to prevent disastrous accidents. It's so much easier to spend this money, these hundreds of billions of dollars, on these workable solutions. The people you mentioned who are promoting nuclear power, they don't seem to be paying attention to the executives in the utility industry who are by droves giving up on nuclear power. I'm thinking in particular John Rowe, who recently retired as chairman and CEO of Exelon, the nation's number one nuclear reactor operator, he said unequivocally in March of 2012 that new reactors don't make any sense, it just isn't economic, and it's not economic within the foreseeable future. And he's just one example. The president of the World Bank said on November 27th, two years ago, that uh, they would not provide port for nuclear power. And the direct quote that he made in his uh, conference in New York City was, our focus is on funding ways of working in hydroelectric power, in geothermal, in solar, in wind, and we don't do nuclear. So there's the World Bank saying they're not going to invest in nuclear power at all. Well, I want to close with another issue here that um, I think is really integral to this uh, to this larger picture and that is the political question because ultimately when it comes to a lot of these issues that we're looking at whether uh, health related issues environmental issues or what have you we have this um, very insidious marriage between the political establishment and financial interests and with regard to the nuclear question it seems to me this central question of the 
NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which acts as essentially uh, an agent of the nuclear industry, an agent of uh, big energy. They are not there as a watchdog. They are not really there uh, to provide some kind of oversight or anything like that, even though that is what they're intended to do. But rather, they act just like the pharmaceutical lobby, just like you know the 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 um, the FDA does for pharmaceuticals and 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 big agribusiness and so forth. They act as a de facto agent of the industry. So it seems to me that if we want to address this question politically, we also have to attack at the source, and the NRC seems to be one of the main problems. Yeah, that's a fact. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been uh, notoriously bad in uh, doing its job protecting the health and from nuclear reactors. The uh, political problem there is that these giant utility corporations and uh, reactor manufacturing companies, they contribute to political campaigns, and uh, say in the state of Illinois, where President Obama hails from, uh, Exelon is one of the chief contributors to political campaigns. And uh, so we do need a citizen-based movement to confront this corrupt, maybe a economic boycott of, or massive conservation campaign that's from the grassroots that would just involve uh, cutting in on the profits of these utilities to the point where they would uh, feel a bite from the uh, ratepayers, be convinced that uh, these reactors need to be retired and replaced with safe alternatives. Absolutely. I mean, I obviously agree. My my fear, my my great overriding fear is that uh, that no such movement will be spurred to action until it's too late. It won't happen until we've already had a catastrophe, the likes of which uh, we saw in Fukushima. I mean, that is in many ways a, a pretty bleak picture I'm painting, but sadly, I, I, I fear that might be the reality. Well, that's uh, that's a dark way to look at things because, in fact, what ha- what's happened in Chernobyl and Fukushima should have been uh, each one and individually should have been the final insult well, exactly. of nuclear power, <laughs> yeah, and they didn't point. happen to turn out that way that, because yeah. the disinformation machine starts so quickly to convince people that, oh, a little cesium in breast milk, which was discovered in in Tokyo, 140 miles away from Fukushima, isn't going to hurt those infants. Right. Or a little uh, incinerator ash that gets into the water table isn't going to harm you. But the fact is... <laughs> Uh, we need to confront this disinformation at the time and uh, not be afraid of being called a uh, conspiracy theorist. It's not really a conspiracy to point out that low-dose radiation causes cancer in the long run. Well, it's it, at this point, we know what it is. We know it's conspiracy fact. That's the That's the thing. There's no theory here. It's fact. Yeah. Um, okay, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I mean, I could have covered a lot more with you. I'd love to have you back to talk about a number of these other issues. Again, um, I've been chatting with John LaFour. She is the co-founder of NukeWatch. Uh, get on their mailing list. Get their newsletter. Where do people go to find you online? Where can people go to uh, subscribe? You can uh, read our newsletter online at uh, nukewatchinfo.org. That's N-U-K-E in the word watch and info. And uh, you can also get a hard copy in the mail just by uh, sending us an email or checking out our access, our information online at NukeWatch Info. Excellent. And please do follow John's work. He's regularly publishing uh, with Counterpunch. We're very glad to have him. John LaForce, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you. 